It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing okay. It seems like I've had a little bit of a break, but uh, I'm back. Yeah, we gave you a vacation. You know, you get two <laughs> weeks off in a 52-week calendar year, and, and you're back, and we're happy to have you. This is episode 184, the June Research Review. Um We've, we've been bouncing a lot of papers back and forth, and I know the ones we've previously done, we try to cover three or four papers, but these are two what I would consider important papers um, that have uh, recently come out. So we'll talk about those before we get into that. I mean, just give us an update. You've had like a life update, and you're not the yeah. type of person who's going to go on social media and be like, life update, you know, yeah. new home, who this? So like you mo- <laughs> you moved. What else has been going on? Yeah, I mean, I finished uh, up work with my last job in San Antonio, Texas, uh, in early June, and then uh, took a, va- a few days vacation down to the Caribbean with my wife, and then uh, in anticipation of our move. And then we both moved. We are now living together in El Paso, Texas, West Texas, um, and been getting settled into our new place out here, got the gym set up, settling into the house, and I started kind of in what's known as in-processing, getting myself back into the hospital system that I'll be working and teaching in out here. What, what do you think the in-pro... Like, so in-processing, I mean, obviously, I didn't move hospitals outside of, like, from med school to residency, like, and you're yeah, like... At yeah. that point, you're getting all your badges, you're, you know, <laughs> making sure all of your papers are up to date, and then you're learning their EMR. It, as an attending, and especially somebody who's going to deal with residents, do you have to do, like, in-processing for the hospital and then also yes. the academic system as well? Yeah, yes. The, the, the most of it is for the hospital. There's all sorts of annoyingly long checklists of tasks and people you have to go meet and get your sheet stamped and say, I, I met with this person or I agree to this policy or I understand this rule or whatever. And then getting set up with the systems and and they have to make sure obviously you've adequate security and background check and clearance and clinical privileges and credentials. And like, yes, you're actually a doctor who's like able to do these things to other humans and things like that. So it's a complicated process. I thought that if you had a blue check mark on Instagram that you, (laughs) I heard that you could bypass all of that because you're just, you're official. I tried telling him like, you guys know my deadlift. I feel like I'm going to go here. They didn't buy it. So I I don't know if I told you this. I had like a, a little shadow ban on Instagram recently for like the last 36 hours uh, maybe 48, I couldn't DM anybody. Hmm. Like I could send voice notes, but I couldn't like respond to DMS. And I think it was just, you know, the, the big low carb industry trying reaching out against me for, for what we said on seed oils. The seed oil. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing. I mean, I, I'm just like, guys, I'm actively combating misinformation on the internet. Like, isn't this what you want? Didn't you ask for this? Uh, <laughs> So, that yeah. seed oil post was that was really something, wasn't it? I mean, it, it yeah, <laughs> I, I can appreciate that people have opinions on things that they do regularly, like eat food, for example. But the idea that you can come to an informed conclusion without rigorous training in a either the field, so in this case, like nutrition, uh, particularly clinically related nutrition, or or some sort of heavy science that has a clinical aspect, like medicine, um, and then a desire on your own to go off and read all this stuff and, and see how it fits in. I, I just don't get it. Like, I, I mean, if somebody asked me a question on like building a rocket, I would just shrug my shoulders and be like, I don't know, bro. Even I'm not though, your guy. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I can do is I don't know. Same thing on investing. Like I have investments, for example, but I'm not licensed or qualified to give you advice, even though I 
understand the markets and I understand, you know, how these things work to some extent, but I don't feel competent to be like, yeah, this is how it is. But, but people have no, uh, problem telling us like, nah, that's all BS. I, I read this one thing on somebody's blog and, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, you can't even have a discussion either. Cause people are like, I don't even agree that science is a thing. And you're like, uh, oh, I feel like we're at an impasse here. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, why are you here then? Yeah. You, you yeah. Know. Anyway. All right. But I, I think as an aside, this is something else that people might find interesting, but David McCraney, the guy who does the, you are not so smart podcast. He just came out with a new book called the how minds change, I think is the name of it. And I'm working mm -hmm. my way through it. I'm not uh, all the way through it yet, but so far it is excellent. And um, I think for anybody who engages in conversation with other humans about uh, potentially contentious topics, sometimes that would be a very worthwhile read for you. Um, now, part of the issue is that like when it comes to these kind of conversations, like we're talking about with polyunsaturated fats and things like that, there's we, on, on one hand, you might be having tons of you know, mountains of, of, of scientific evidence and stuff like that, that you're trying to bring to the table. But like you said, there's some people who just, that's not the way that they got to their decision. And so using that as the lever is not going to move them away from their position. Right, it it right. is much more of a, a story that is crafted and you have to get more of the roots of people's motivations for believing something or for, for arriving at a certain conclusion, which is a much more involved topic and certainly not one that uh, Instagram threads or Twitter threads or literally anywhere in text form really is uh, conducive to. So, right. When I see like a big block of text as a response, like at Arbol Medicine block of text, I'm like, oh boy, here we yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like I, I don't know. And, and you know, what's wild is like when people, even if they're trying to bring evidence to the table, uh, invariably they, they won't cite it. Or if they do cite it, they'll just use the name. And it's like, well, this person likely has published multiple papers. So, you know, where is it? Just give me a PMID, you know, like if you want me to quote unquote, look it up, like just what's the PMID and then we'll get to it. I remember famously squat you like published, you know, like t cited 10 sources for like why asymmetrical training was like, you know, if you, if you had an imbalance or something that was like bad. And then we pulled the sources and we're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> like if we were red pen reviews, they'd get, he'd get a zero out of 10 for like the accuracy of the, or the relevance of the citations to the well, claims right. being made. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Anyway, um, this is not a squat you related podcast, but <laughs> here we go. Uh, yes. But you're so house of gains 6.0 is, is up and running. Yeah, I mean, I think Lauren and I were trying to think of how many uh, home gyms I've been through at this point. It's either five or six. I think it's number five uh, if I had to if I had to go through them. But uh, yeah, this is probably the best one yet. So I, I, I guess uh, I guess that's the direction things should be going in. If I've been <laughs> working at this for for so long. Any any new additions to the gym? People people at home might be interested to know if you're going to like buy anything new, something cool that you've always wanted. Now that you're somewhere, presumably more more permanent. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I think we'll probably be here for, for a little while, at least, um, in terms of new equipment, really, I'm not thinking of a ton of stuff. I had debated back and forth a little bit about getting like a competition style combo rack, but, uh, at the same time, those are like fairly inconvenient to move around if you want mm -hmm. to. And one of my platforms, I just have a set of squat stands on, which are actually super easy to move on and off mm -hmm. so that like, you know, if Lauren wants to do some weightlifting or anything like that. It's, it's easy to use that platform for it. But, um, 
and I also don't like people are asking me still all the time when I'm going to do a meet, and I'm like I don't really care about powerlifting competition still. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe one day, but um, not enough to get a, a combo rack. So if anything, I'm actually might be having paring things down a little bit. Like I'm, I might be getting rid of my chains and a couple other things that I'm like, eh, I don't really use these or feel like I benefit from them. Um, pair, pair things back down to, to, um, you know, the toys that I use most often, but, uh, it's nice having all my stuff in one place though, for sure. Yeah. I think if I had to do it, like if I had a space, we'll just call it, let's call it a three car garage. Cause it realistically, like I need the spot for the garage for the car. I need a spot for the dirt bike and tools and whatever. And so then I have like a one car garage or maybe a little bit bigger for a training space. I'd get a rogue R three rack the the 24 inch one. Cause that's everything I'd want to do with a rack I could do in there. Uh, I'd probably get some squat stands in case I wanted to do, you know, any overhead work that I couldn't do in the rack, for example, or like Bulgarian split squats or, you know, step up something where I could just take a bar out of the rack, you know, that would be interesting. Uh, and then I would get, a trap bar. I'd have a straight bar. I'd have a safety squat bar. I'd have a training bar in case somebody came over, you know, and I needed to use that or I needed to use it for rehab purposes. I'd have a full complement of weights, both calibrated steels and probably bumpers just in case. And I think the only toys that I would like have outside of conditioning equipment, which I would probably get the assault bike and a rower. I have a skier gear that I just really, I use it infrequently, but it was like a impulse bikes. I was like, I just want to do something hard. My upper body, uh, I would probably get a sled. And, and then the only like two toys that I would want personally would be like a belt squat and, and maybe like a GHD just cause I, I like those. I figured you wouldn't like the GHD, but I did think you'd be like belt squat curious. Yeah, I think just not curious enough to commit the floor space to something like that. So right now I just have the two platforms, one uh, R3 rack, a set of squat stands, and then weights and, and bars and, uh, and a, yeah. a, a rogue uh, air bike. But that's right. it. Would you rather have a full complement of dumbbells, fives to, let's just call it 120s, let's just say, and let's just say those are the same exact price as a belt squat, which they're not, but let's just say, would you rather have a belt squat or the dumbbell set? Probably the dumbbell set, honestly. Yeah, I thought you would. That's what I thought you would say. <laughs> I would also probably get an, I would, I would get like an adjustable bench and then like a, a regular bench. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I think the dumbbell thing would be interesting. It's just, gosh, that's a lot of floor space. And that's a lot of like, exactly. I feel like, you're, <laughs> I feel like you get a notice from like the environmental agency. They're like, Hey dude, your carbon footprint is now huge. Cause you just bought all of his rubberized weights. But anyway, maybe, maybe in the future, uh, we're going to plug the app again, new app is continuously being updated it is available for free in the apple itunes store we're right right now we're working on the web app so people with all types of internets and smartphones and whatever can go to our website use the templates use uh, get coaching access our resources a little more easily and then the android app will be after that people keep asking well, any update on that i'm like guys like as soon as it's ready for beta I know where I'm going. The We're not going to keep it a secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, but yeah, it's available for free. It's on the Apple App Store right now. If you're curious about any of our programs, programming, how we would recommend you select a template, it's all built and it's for free. You can access all the first weeks for free. You can uh, use the algorithm that we built to select a template. You can access all of our uh, articles, everything else on the app. So check that out. And then last but not least, hey, we got some new drip. This is going to go up, I think, Wednesday the 20th. And so then on the 22nd, that's how the Gregorian calendar works. Two days later on Friday, the new gear should be in the Barbell Medicine store online. This one, you can't see it 
and the listeners, you can't see it because you know, radio waves, that's how this works. Uh, this one has the owl on the back. And I, you know, it's funny. I was talking to the, the graphic designer and I was like, Hey, you know, the, uh, the owl from the Tootsie Pop commercial, like let's do that guy, but jacked. And he comes out with this super jacked, admittedly with a low, you know, small legs, which I mean, I guess owls do have small, tiny little legs. Uh, but yeah, Tootsie Pop guy asking how many more sets do you have left? And I think that's hilarious. We also have some tanks uh, for men and women. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested in some, new barbell medicine apparel it is dropping this friday as always limited quantities so get yours and uh, if you were wondering this model i feel like i'm a standardized patient this patient no this model and we use that term very charitably around here i wear a large i am 205 to 210 pounds on any given day uh more towards the lighter end now i actually have crept into the high 190s on some days and i was like oh what's happening i'm small again um but yeah i wear a large and that's, that's it. And I feel like I'm an above average sized upper body. Uh, somebody commented in your DMS, like you and Jordan are only a few pounds apart yet carry way more muscle than I do. Am I doing something <laughs> wrong? And it's like, I mean, we've been doing this for like almost 15 years now. Yeah. And I would say with, with <laughs> favorable genetics sure, and, and yeah. favorable programming and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I don't just mean genetics with response to the programming, but also like the desire to like want to do this stuff. So yeah, I mean, if you're wearing an XL, that's cool too. But I wear a large. You wear? Are you a large or you, you're a medium? Yeah, I typically wear large shirts. Sure, they're probably yeah. not as snug on me as they are on you because I'm. I've definitely been running lighter than you have been for for a while by a few pounds, I guess. Uh, well, I've been doing all this conditioning and 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 motocross. I'm telling you, man, I'm like, man, do I am I going to get back to the the medium large horizon? Yeah. Like where I'm like, have to. De- <laughs> I don't know if I get back into medium. That's going to be. That's going to be weird. I have a shirt. I'm not going to name the manufacturer because they're not giving me any money for this. But they sent me a shirt, uh, some shirts, and they asked me what size I was. And I said XL at the time. I was like 210. I was like, I'm an extra large. And I put that thing on. I thought it was a compression shirt. I thought it was like the under, like, like it was suctioned to me. <laughs> and uh, I sent it. I said, hey, man, this thing's too small. They're like, oh, yeah, you're probably a double X. And so I put on, they sent me some double X's and I was walking around like I'm, you know, imaginary lat syndrome, the whole thing. I'm double XL. Now I went to Nordstrom. I was buying some, some more clothes. I needed a button up for this event. And uh, I was like, Oh, uh, excuse me. Can you bring me a double X? I bought, I put on a normal sized double X, not this, you know, medium small boy double X. And I, w- I've never been in a larger shirt. I don't know. Like it was a dress. So I never quite made it to double X, but uh, yeah, if you're wondering home, what sizes we wear, we wear large and the internet will probably take that and run with it. Maybe make a, there'll probably be a meme. I, I can feel it coming. Uh, any other announcements you can think of? Uh, none that I can think of right now. Uh, we're going to LA. We got a seminar. We got a live in-person seminar. Um, that's in November. So if you want to come uh, to our health and performance seminar, it's two days. Austin and I will be there. I think the rest of the crew is going to come in because we haven't done this in a while. So it should be a good time. And Derek's going to be there. I know that too for any rehab-oriented people. Yep. Derek will be there. And then uh, next year, we're finalizing our locations. Looks like we're going to be on the East Coast a little bit. Maybe Atlanta. New York looks pretty good. Uh, Maybe a place in Texas. And then I think also in Seattle at some point. We'll see. So TBD on those, but the one for Los Angeles in November is up and available and spots are going pretty quick. So if you're interested in joining us, well, come on out. Okay. This is podcast episode 184. 
we were going to address two, what I would consider very important topics. One is protein restriction uh, for chronic kidney disease, and the other is uh, predictors of weight regain. So we're going to start out with uh, chronic kidney disease and protein restriction. This is, I mean, this is a tale as old as, I mean, it's certainly older than the internet. Like this controversy, this this tale uh, probably dates back to the 1920s. The idea that if you were uh, at risk of chronic kidney disease, if you had some kidney disease, uh, or even if you wanted to preserve your kidneys, right, for kidney health, quote unquote, kidney health, low protein diet, bro, that's what you need. But uh, let's examine some of the evidence. So this is from the American Society of Nephrology. This is this came out in June of 2022. So this year. Uh, the title is protein restriction for CKD time to move on. I've linked that in the description below. It's open access. You can, you guys can check it out. This is from, uh, three prominent nephrologists. One, uh, the lead author is Obide. Um, but our favorite nephrologist is on the paper, Joel Toff, kidney boy. And if you are looking for people to follow on Twitter who post interesting information at kidney boy, Joel Toff, do you have his, do you have his text? His, uh, his like, yes, I do. What is It's for management of chronic kidney disease or is just like called the kidney, the nephron? Oh, no. I think he has a few different texts that he's been involved in. The one that I have has to do with critical care nephrology, basically like dealing with kidney problems in like very, very sick people, like the kind that I deal with in the hospital. But I know he's been involved in several other things. He wrote uh, way back a a text. I think that's freely available called like the acid base and electrolyte companion. Yeah, that's the one I I read back and yeah, to, to, to uh, do learn the basics of nephrology basically, which is a really good introductory one for people who are as big of nerds as we are. I remember reading that. I'm like, damn chloride. Why are you so complicated? (laughs) (laughs) Um, my, my favorite part of this entire article is actually the very first line. It's, it starts with this quote, it says all a low pri- pro- uh, sorry it says all a low protein diet does is to shrink the patient down to the size of his kidneys and that's from Frank Parsons this is a UK trained uh, physician he was a pioneer of dialysis and kidney transplantation from he's from the UK um, so in any case this is a review of the evidence for the dietary management of chronic kidney disease specifically dietary protein restriction because again you always hear look if you're at any risk of kidney disease or, or you have kidney disease eat a low protein diet and there's been a lot of controversy about this. And I think when we review some of the evidence, you'll see why it's been so controversial. So first, Austin, before we talk about, you know, what the current recommendations are for protein in, dietary protein intake and chronic kidney disease, can we give the listeners at home an overview of like what actually is chronic kidney disease? Sure. Uh, so this will be a very summarized, I guess, superficial overview because this is a complicated uh, topic. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, a, a lot of folks who are health oriented, uh, you know, who maybe are uh, maybe listening, probably understand that the kidneys serve as most simplistically as, as sort of like blood filters. Um, they help us excrete toxins. They also do a lot of other things beyond that, but they are the things that produce urine and the production of urine is the byproduct of their ability to kind of maintain homeostasis, maintain normal blood levels of all sorts of important things like your sodium and your potassium and things like that. They also regulate things like your pH, the acid base balance in your blood. They're involved in regulating blood pressure. They're involved in um, uh, other hormone related processes like making enough blood and and all sorts of things. So, so very, very, very important organs. Most people I would argue take them for, (laughs) for granted, but that's kind of like an overview of their role. And so when the kidneys uh, become injured in some way, uh, particularly for uh, in a way that is persistent over time, so, so chronic kidney disease is defined by having kidney damage or decreased kidney function for three or more months. 
And this can happen for many, many, many different causes. There are way, you know, the massive list of reasons why people can develop chronic kidney disease. Among the most common that we see, you know, say in the U.S. these days is uh, is poorly controlled diabetes that can exist for long periods of time and that can lead to damage, structural damage to the kidney, and that can also contribute to decreases in kidney function. And when I say decreases in kidney function, um, that's something that is uh, it can refer to many different things because, again, the kidney has many different functions, but most objectively and, and, and uh, commonly measured is this um, concept called a filtration rate. So basically, I mentioned that they act as blood filters, and so we're measuring how quickly, what's the rate that they are filtering your blood and thereby producing urine. And we use a bunch of you know blood tests that we can use to do this and equations that we can use to estimate how how quickly or, or if in the setting of chronic kidney disease, how slowly somebody's kidneys are filtering the blood. And as chronic kidney disease uh, progresses, if it worsens to the point where the kidneys are filtering less and less and less blood, making less and less and less urine, doing their all of those jobs more poorly, then you can get, um, you know, those electrolytes that I mentioned can get really out of whack. Your blood pressure can get really out of whack. You can stop making enough blood for yourself and become anemic. And all of these kind of things are, are what we see in patients who require uh, dialysis in the, in the long term. So that's kind of like an overview of what the kidneys do for us. Uh, what is uh, the definition of chronic kidney disease, that kidney damage or decreased kidney function? Then it has to be for at least three months or longer persistent um, because we have fluctuations in our kidney function on shorter term basis all the time. So, um, so that's kind of like an overview of that, that particular topic. Yeah. There, and for the clinicians that are leading, listening to this, they're like, bro, you didn't even mention glomerular filtration rate once you didn't mention specific cutoff for stage yeah. one, stage two, stage three, stage four, stage five. And it's <laughs> like, well, yeah, those things exist, but that doesn't really change the overarching definition, the umbrella term that is chronic kidney disease. And then if you are a clinician listening to this and you know about the different stages, Hey, congratulations. That's good. You can go look them up. <laughs> like, you know, uh, uh, but for people listening to this, yeah, I think that was an excellent summary of like, what is chronic kidney disease? You might also hear this referred to as CKD. Um, and at its later or latter stages, yes, uh, KD as for end stage kidney disease. But, um, uh, yeah, I think that was good. So, the current recommendations um, from the Kidney Disease Quality Outcomes Initiative uh, state that in adults with chronic kidney disease, stages three to five, so those are later stages, who are otherwise metabolically stable, so those folks, uh, you know, tend to be living, you know, in the community by themselves, um, their diabetes, if they have it, for example, is well managed. Uh, they recommend protein restriction to reduce risk for end-stage kidney disease and improve quality of life. So... The idea here is that if you take in less dietary protein, you will either slow the progression of kidney disease. So you don't progress from stage three to stage four to stage five rapidly. Um, that's claim one. And then claim two, that it also improves quality of life, which is harder to define, although there are a bunch of validated metrics that can be used. Uh, but in any case, that is the claim. And that is where they come up with these recommendations, which are to follow either a low or very low protein diet. And how this shakes out really just depends on the patient and their current dietary protein intake. But the low protein uh, recommendations are to take in from 0.55 to 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight or 0.28 to 0.43 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. That's the very low protein recommendation. And if you compare and contrast that to the current dietary guidelines for Americans, right, or what some people would call the RDA, uh, recommended the uh, daily allowance, 
that's 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. So significantly lower than the current recommendations, which by the way, I've heard this, I've seen this. People say, oh, we're not eating enough protein. And I'm like, uh, the average protein intake, particularly in the United States is relatively high. Most people are well above that 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. Do we think that's optimal, particularly from like a muscle mass function and muscle mass amount? Absolutely not. But as far as like, are people routinely eating less protein than they need per day? Answer to that, no. Usually much higher. The quality of that protein tends to be relatively low um, because it's from processed red meats, for example, or other foods where they're not getting um, uh, the full complement of essential amino acids, but that's for another podcast. The whole point though, when people say, oh, you're not eating, most people don't eat enough protein per day. It's like citation or like caveat. Because if you if what you mean like it's not enough for muscle optimal muscle mass function and, and amount, sure we agree. That's a different claim, yeah. Yeah, different claim. Okay, so in a, in any case, let's get to the science. Does dietary protein increase pre existing kidney disease? So if you take the Wayback Machine, which I think you're too young to get that cartoon reference, the Wayback Machine, Mister Peabody, Rocky Bullwinkle. Okay, uh, back in the 1920s, if we go back there, there were a few animal models that showed uh, this thing called hyperfiltration. Basically, means there's a ton of blood flow going into the glomerulus, which is where the kidney does its dirty work, filters the blood. It's uh, this tuft, if you will, of arteries and veins and these semi-permeable <laughs> sort of uh, membranes. And in any case, when you dump a bunch of blood in there, you can get above normal levels of filtration, aka hyperfiltration. And this can cause a bunch of things depending on how you get to that point. Uh, increased glomerular filtration rate, which you might think, hey, that's good. If that's a marker of quote unquote kidney health, why is raising that bad? Well, that seems to be temporary. Um, and then it tends to go below normal if that persists. So one of the disease processes that does this, for example, is high blood pressure. High blood pressure causes hyperfiltration as it starts out. And then if you keep slamming the kidney with all this blood, they tend to uh, get uh, damaged. Uh, so the glomerular sclerosis, for example, would be one of the pathologies that you see. And so you get things like protein in the urine that's called proteinuria, et cetera. This, again, was seen in the 1920s in animal models. So already we're thinking, ooh, dietary protein may be not so great for quote-unquote kidney health. The mechanism at play here is that dietary protein raises nitric oxide levels, and that increases the diameter of the artery leading to the glomerulus. So if you dilate that, make it bigger, the blood flow there increases. And so you get this rush of blood uh, going in there. High blood pressure doesn't really dilate that artery. It doesn't make it any bigger, but it does increase the pressure by which that glomerulus is getting slammed by blood. Uh, interestingly, it is presumed that a low protein diet actually causes vasoconstriction, a narrowing of that artery leading to the glomerulus, uh, which is supposed to reduce the filtration rate back to quote unquote normal. Uh, that's actually the same mechanism of action as the SGL2 inhibitors, the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 and we use those drugs all the time. I say we, like the royal we, I don't prescribe <laughs> these, the Flozins, but uh, you see people on those drugs, those medications all the time. So what, what are they used yeah. for? Yeah, I prescribe those medicines and use them regularly. I would say probably a fair number of our listeners may be on them. They're medicines that have probably come up when we've talked about diabetes and, and weight loss before too. So 
these medicines um, are relatively newer in the uh, diabetes world, which is kind of where they were first studied, although we're finding that they have benefits in tons of other areas. And so they're now becoming like uh, also cardiovascular medicines and, and, mm -hmm. and kidney medicines and being used for all sorts of things because we're seeing randomized controlled trial evidence of benefit in all sorts of different areas. And, and this most simplistic way to think about these medicines is that they uh, block the ability of our kidneys to reabsorb any sugar glucose that gets filtered into the, uh, uh, into the urine. So, so if any glucose gets into past the glomerulus, if it gets filtered, our kidneys normally reabsorb it, suck it back up because for, probably from an evolutionary standpoint, it was very valuable to not mm -hmm. lose, uh, uh, any last molecule of glucose that you could, uh, these medicines block our ability to do that. So people end up effectively peeing out extra glucose and you'll pee out a set number of, uh, uh calories per day effectively. And so these tend to generate a little bit of weight loss. Uh, tend to facilitate a little bit more, um, uh, have a bit of a diuretic effect. So tend to lower blood pressure a little bit. Um, but those are the most, uh, simplistic, uh, uh, ways that we understood the medicine to work very early on. Um, however, since then we have found all sorts of other interesting effects, which, well, interesting to, to, to probably me and you beyond the scope of what we could get into in this podcast in terms of altering things like sodium handling in the kidney, altering some of these blood pressures in various parts of the kidney, altering the way the, the heart utilizes things for energy and, and, and a bunch of other things that we've, uh, that we've discovered that have led to better outcomes in cardiovascular disease, led to better outcomes in kidney disease and led to better outcomes in diabetes, uh, as well. So these are uh, being used very, very commonly. I use them all the time. Uh, in most of the patients that I see that have these kinds of issues. Yeah. I, th I think the the take-home point is that while the mechanism may be similar, or at least part of the mechanism may be similar in that it reduces, you know, the size of the artery leading to the glomerulus, therefore decreasing filtration uh, back to normal, the way that you get there is important. So if you do it via a low protein diet, that seems to be due mostly to a decrease in nitric oxide, which is its own sort of uh, enzyme with a bunch of other activities. And uh, that subsequently uh, has a myriad of different effects. And if you do it via a medication, it's got its own myriad of effects. And, and this is most analogous, you know, to kind of understand this, that it depends how you get there, probably to blood pressure and, and, and you know, what high blood pressure does from having high resting blood pressure. So hypertension versus having elevated blood pressure during activity, you know, which we see in every physical activity, you cannot perform a, you know, physical activity without your blood pressure going up. That is part of the normal adaptive response. And so if you have high resting blood pressure, high, you know, hypertension, yeah, you can get arteriosclerosis. You can, you know, be at risk of a greater risk at heart of heart disease. Whereas if you exercise, even though you're still experiencing these transient increases in blood pressure, you actually have a reduction in heart disease, a reduction in resting blood pressure. So it matters how you get there. So the idea that like, oh, a low protein diet works as an SGL2 inhibitor. It's like, eh, I think that's a stretch. And to be clear, no one's really claiming that, but that is like one of the purported mechanisms where like, eh, probably matters how you get there. You agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and ultimately this is why we Again, it's like one of our pet topics that we keep coming back to, but rather than focusing on mechanism, looking at actual outcomes, right? Because you can, you can hypothesize that, oh, anything else that shares this mechanism is going to have the same effect. But then if you study it and the actual outcomes that you see in actual people with this actual condition, doing this actual intervention, if they don't point in the same direction or if they point in opposite directions, then you have to reconsider, is it due to the mechanism that you thought it was or is something else at play that you maybe don't know about yet? Yeah, exactly. So people, when we say, oh yeah, sometimes your logic fails, right? It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't get you where you think it should go. But the reality is you just don't all, all of the players, 
you don't yeah. know enough to actually form the, the logical sort of uh, uh, argument. Okay, so what does the science say? Now, a lot of most of this data is from the '90s and early 2000s. Um, this first the first trial that's kind of cited uh, in this paper and that as as a sort of strong source of evidence for reducing dietary protein. Um, they took 450 patients um, who had diagnosed kidney disease um, and they randomized them to a low protein diet where they're getting 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day or normal protein, which is actually higher one gram of protein per kilogram body weight per day. So actually not just like they were eating the RDA, but like a substantial amount more. Um, now, interestingly, none of them could be on ACE inhibitors, which is a common medication used, uh, particularly at, uh, a few years later um, in patients with kidney disease, but they couldn't be on that in this particular study. Uh, the difference as far as like progression of kidney disease did not reach significance. And interestingly, 14% of the subjects withdrew from the study. 14% uh, of those who were in the low protein diet withdrew from the study because it was too hard for them to stick on the, to stay with the diet. Interestingly, the kidney function loss, as far as it could be measured at the time, was actually greater in the low protein group. So it's like even those who stayed with it, they didn't really see a benefit. And it's like, hmm, this is supposed to be used in support of a low protein diet? Uh, question mark. Uh, another study, and the, there are some problems with this study. They didn't pre-specify any outcomes. No individual data on individual patients were available or reported. Um, but after a four-year follow-up where uh, one group got low protein and another group got normal protein, the author stated, after four years of follow-up, we are only moderately optimistic about dietary protein restriction as a general measure for the management of the progression of chronic renal insufficiency, which is a fancy way of saying, we don't really know if this protein restriction is going to do jack for people with kidney disease. Um, two other studies were actually also uh, reviewed in this, uh, this paper that we're talking about here, and neither of them found robust evidence for low protein diets, lowering the risk of kidney disease or slowing the progression of kidney disease. So like kind of a double whammy there. Um, as recently as 2020, the Cochrane systematic, uh, the Cochrane group did a systematic review and the Cochrane group, we like them in general because they're independent. They kind of sort through all of the data and make it available, uh, for clinicians and people interested in this stuff. So we, we tend to value their data, uh, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty highly. Um, so this, this systematic review they did in 2020 showed no effect of a low protein diet versus a normal protein diet on, uh, glomerular uh, filtration rate and how quickly that declined. So, you know, that basically that would be a marker of the progression of chronic kidney disease. Um, so, so far we're, we're over four. We got four studies reviewed, one systematic review, um, some with a pretty long outcome, uh, follow-up four years, not really in support, certainly not a robust amount of evidence showing man, low protein diets really doing the trick here on uh, chronic kidney disease. Uh, they're one of the more famous studies though, this modification of diet in renal disease, the famous MDRD study showed that a low protein diet reduces the symptoms of uremia, which Austin, I'll have you talk about that. Um, this is something that people who get chronic kidney disease, they get these symptoms of uremia. And so that would be like a trigger for a clinician to start considering dialysis, which is basically like a machine doing the jobs of your kidney. Uh, so in that study, basically, if these folks followed a low protein diet and they had a delay in progression to symptoms of uremia, perhaps you could delay the initiation of dialysis. So maybe that study would have a signal uh, uh, supporting a low protein diet as folks got closer and closer to needing dialysis. Um, the interesting point of this, and we'll get back to uremia here in a second, 
is that when this study has been reanalyzed and it has been reanalyzed to death, uh, the actual source of the protein, not the amount of protein seems to be an even stronger signal. So that means that people who are eating a high, uh, uh, their protein intake, if it came from a high amount of red meat, especially processed red meat, um, that tended to increase the risk of having symptoms of uremia. Whereas the, uh, amount, if they had a higher amount of fish, eggs, dairy, or poultry, that did not seem to correlate well, um, with symptoms of uremia. So it, at that point you're wondering, is it the dose or is it the source? And, you know, I'm certainly not a statistician and I know that there are a lot of primary studies here and I don't pretend to have read all of them, but I think that if you're looking for very robust evidence showing that lowering the dietary protein amount and only the amount, uh, as a potential intervention for reducing risk of developing chronic kidney disease or reducing the progression rate, I'm kind of left scratching my head. I'm like, well, what the heck's going on here? Uh, Austin, what is, what is uremia and like, what, like what kind of symptoms are people experiencing that? Like, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. Uh, so since I described the kidneys as kind of functioning in, in part as blood filters and helping us excrete a lot of metabolic byproducts and toxins and, and things like that as kidney disease advances and that filtration rate declines, uh, sometimes to, to very, very low levels, uh, these things will start to accumulate and they can have consequences, um, including a variety of symptoms. And uremia is a very broad general term, but sometimes patients can get, you know, pretty fatigued. There can be some itching, there can be some nausea, there can be some cognitive effects, things like that. There's a bunch of other ones. It's a lengthy list. But the interesting thing here, and this is pointed out by the authors of this paper that uh, was just published that we're kind of drawing this research review from, is that uremia in general, the symptoms that come out from chronic kidney disease, like it takes a surprisingly long time. And by long time, I mean, uh, rather, I should say a, a surprisingly large decline in kidney function before people's, uh, before people develop these kind of symptoms, like your mm -hmm. kidneys have to be very, very bad <laughs> before yeah. these things start to, uh, start to crop up. And before somebody will actually say it's time to actually start dialysis on you. Um, and, and this is, in, you know, this is illustrated Commonly, like we'll look at, oh, what's a completely normal like GFR for somebody? It could be like, you know, 125 and that there's some units associated with that that people don't need to worry about right now. And then we have these stages of, of chronic kidney disease as you start to get below 90 and 60 and 30 and 15. And it's like all the way down, um, you know, sub 15, we're having some of these, these conversations. And so it takes, again, a very long time. And so the authors of this paper that, that uh, we're reviewing here that we're talking about, they point out that in this study that they didn't really show that the low protein diet had a significant effect on how quickly GFR decreased. In other words, it didn't seem to have a big effect on like the rate of decline of filtration, but it did maybe prevent some of the symptoms. And perhaps it's that delay of symptoms where people didn't feel bad enough to where doctors then delayed the initiation of dialysis. And so it's like, if that's the case, if it really can mitigate some of these symptoms, but doesn't really seem to have a very clear effect on reducing the rate of decline in infiltration, then is it even appropriate to be recommending this to people even with earlier degrees or milder degrees of, of kidney impairment, chronic kidney disease, or should it just be, if it does have this benefit of reducing symptoms, then just wait until people are at that more advanced stage to say, hey, this is something that might make you feel better, right? but not necessarily recommend it the entire time to mitigate the rate of decline if we don't have awesome evidence that it actually does that. Yeah. It's like in sarcopenia, right? Like you have to lose so much muscle mass before you get the decline in function that's actually like yeah. noticeable, like frankly yeah. noticeable. But imagine you had a medication that like 
almost artificially restored somebody's muscle function. It's like, wait, well, now we're delaying all of these potential good interventions further. Like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> that doesn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It, the Probably the most important thing I took away from this paper, though, is that all of this data was done before we had any medications that targeted the renin angiotensin system. Like we have multiple medications now that can block that system that are heavily involved in treating chronic kidney disease at various stages. Uh, so like it may in fact have been that a low protein diet was like one of the better things that we could have done at the time based on our knowledge, based on the environment, based on the medications we had available to us. Although again, this data doesn't seem to <laughs> reflect that, but let's just say, uh, but now we have all these additional medications that just changes the landscape of where you're interpreting these papers from. It's like, all right, cool. We reduced protein, but it really didn't do anything. Maybe it did a little bit towards the end stage, but we have all these other medications. Like where's that data now? And it's like, man, I don't really know what to do with this old historical data. It's kind of irrelevant at this point because nobody would come into the clinic being managed for chronic kidney disease without being on one of these medications. So like Austin, what are the, what is that physiological system and what do those medications do? Yeah, so uh, a nephrologist might get picky and tell you that it's pronounced renin, but that's, oh, yeah. you know, that's, no. that's, that's, the, that's just the way they are. But uh, <laughs> renin, angiotensin, aldosterone is this set of, it's this complement of hormones that kind of uh, act in concert to orchestrate a whole bunch of really important things, um, including blood pressure, electrolyte balance, uh, uh, the... Um, Vast, the the, the uh, tightness of our of our blood vessels, and then that has downstream impacts or potentially upstream impacts on things like our heart and 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 kidney function as well. So this is a extremely important system. I end up basically having to in some way deal with, interact, or manipulate this hormone system in patients multiple times a day, every day in practice. So mm -hmm. uh, very very common, very very important. And we have evidence that medications that block certain aspects of this system, common ones were actually outlined in our blood pressure podcast and in the blood pressure article that I wrote. So anybody who's on an ACE inhibitor, like lisinopril, for example, that's um, uh, one inhibitor of this pathway. Other medicines like spironolactone is, an, is another example of something that kind of acts in, in generally on this whole uh, pathway. And there are several others as well. Um, uh, but these are very commonly used medicines and they have evidence for reducing uh, some of that protein leak, proteinuria that you talked about in through uh, the glomerulus when it gets uh, injured in chronic kidney disease, uh, reducing that uh, hyperfiltration, reducing that high blood pressure within the glomerulus, within the filtration site itself, and, and a bunch of other uh, potential mechanisms by which they can reduce the rate of decline of kidney function in patients with chronic kidney disease and improve outcomes markedly. And this extends also to patients with heart issues and, and, uh, and a bunch of other uh, conditions as well. So really important system. We manipulate it all the time and blocking it using one or more of these medicines in certain situations. Um, we have randomized control trial level evidence that it uh, improves outcomes for patients. So that's why we use it all the time. And so, you know, it's an interesting point that you make that if a lot of that data came from an era before these medicines that seem to have much more clear and apparent benefits, then it's difficult to just assume or extrapolate any potential small benefits from back then and say, oh, that's probably just going to stack on top of be additive to any benefits we get from these medicines. It may just be obliterated by the benefits that we get from the yeah. medicines. And then, and then you don't necessarily get as much or any of those benefits from that low protein diet intervention while you do get all the harms and downsides, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, can I tell you one of the most embarrassing moments of my life? Uh, if you're willing to put that out there, go for it, man. I was doing, so during my master's in anatomy and, and clinical physiology, I was doing a, like a presentation 
um, on the kidneys in the anatomy lab. And I was talking, of course, about the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and, you know, how it relates and, and whatever. Um, but I, at, I don't know why I, and I, it just happened again, but yeah, you bet your butt. I said, renin, <laughs> I, I did. And I look renin and, and I was, I was called out by, by my anatomy, one of the anatomy professors. And she goes, uh, what did you say? And I said, renin <laughs> and she goes, what? And I said it again and I get one, a third time. She says, excuse me one more time. And I said, uh, renin. I was a, kind of angry at that point. And she goes, that is an enzyme that's used to curdle milk in cow's stomachs and make cheese. <laughs> renin is the enzyme that you're referring to. I'm like, I'm going to go kill myself guys. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can't. So very, yes, well explained. And thank you for the correction. That is important because I don't want anybody to go to the bar, try to impress somebody and they say Renin. And then that professor somehow is there. And then you have my experience. So say Renin, don't say Renin. <laughs> Unless you are in fact talking about the enzyme with two ends in cow stomachs that help uh, milk curdle. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you summarized it nicely, you know, with this new data, it's really hard to take these findings and be like, yep, that checks out. That makes sense. Uh, we should do a low protein diet. And further, none of these recommendations seem to be weighed, uh, with the consideration for how important lean body mass is, particularly for longevity, uh, living an independent and high quality life. Um, and how protein intake influences that if somebody's on one of these low protein or very low protein diets, we have what I would consider to be uh, very strong evidence that their lean body mass is going to decrease and a reduction in lean body mass, particularly as you age is straight up, not a good time and, you know, portends bad outcomes. Uh, so I think if you're like comparing risk benefit, I could feel very confident in saying, Eating a protein, uh, a dietary uh, protein amount that supports lean body mass function and lean body mass amount, uh, the benefits of that, based on the current evidence, outweigh the purported benefits of a low protein diet in chronic kidney disease, particularly early uh, stage chronic kidney disease. I don't really know, you know, when patients have uremia, like at that point, what, what you're doing, if you're considering dialysis, maybe that calculus changes, but, but even then I'm like, man, these signals just don't seem that strong. So like, what are we doing here? And in um, patients and assuming patients are being adequately treated from a medication standpoint, if they're on the right meds, um, would yeah. be the other criterion for, for this kind of a position. Ultimately it's going to end up being an individual conversation with, with patients between the, between the patient and the clinician. But again, I don't know how many clinicians are keeping as up on this thing, um, and are comfortable having this kind of a conversation. The, the other caveat I would add is like, when it comes to the amount of dietary protein, I think you made a good point earlier about emphasizing the, the source as well, because, um, we're talking about an overall dietary pattern here. And additionally, we don't need to be purely kidney centric here. Like most common reason these people die is still cardiovascular disease. And so we should be still recommending mm -hmm. not only the right amount of protein, but the sources will matter not only potentially for their kidney related health, but also cardiovascular health. Um, and all the other reasons why we typically recommend people go towards certain protein sources and maybe perhaps away from, from others. Um, maybe some of the, the leaner, uh, if people are going to include animal sources, the, the leaner, uh, types, perhaps a little bit less on the red meat side, a little bit more on the fish side, and then plant protein is all good. When we've talked about things like legumes and, and things like that, um, we're, are, are all good to go. So, um, those would be some of the added, added considerations I'd be, I'd be having in these, uh, in these discussions with people. 
how many nephrologists do you think are listening to this and are like, shirts off, let's go. I'm going to take the barbell medicine crew on. I mean, I know at least like one or two, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll deadlift to the death. No, I mean, I think, I think, I think even conservatively, you could say we need better data on protein restricted diets in this particular population. And if you want to be more aggressive and say, you know, we shouldn't even pay any attention to this at all. I would say, well, you could make that argument based on the evidence, particularly in the current landscape. But, you know, it's like you said, it's going to be individualized. I think more importantly, and particularly for our listenership, when we're talking about protein intake and like the risk of developing chronic kidney disease, I feel very comfortable in saying like, I don't see the connection. I, I see the connection between maybe a poor dietary pattern that's results in quote unquote high levels of dietary protein, but I don't know that it's the protein. I, I think in fact that it is the dietary pattern because most people who eat a high protein diet who are not involved in the fitness scene at all and are eating a ton, you know, a high amount of protein are eating a lot of red meat and particularly processed red meat and other sources of protein that are coming with added sugars, high levels of sodium, high levels of saturated fat, et cetera. Yeah, they're probably eating just a high calorie diet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So if you have a health promoting dietary pattern and you're eating the dietary protein uh, amount that we recommend, which is at 1.4, 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, and you're getting that from poultry, fish, dairy, you know, plant sources, et cetera. I, I I do not think that that is going to alter your risk for developing chronic kidney disease compared to eating a lower protein diet from those same sources. Um, Agree. Hey, we agreed. Look at that. <laughs> you know that was only supposed to be like twenty minutes. We just we just doubled that. I I don't know how much of that was our happy talk at the beginning, but yeah. Well, we I can get through this next one probably quicker. Yeah, sure. Okay, paper number two. The association between fat-free mass loss after diet and exercise interventions and weight regain in women with overweight and obesity. So this is from the uh, Medicine uh, and Science and Sports and Exercise Journal, published ahead of print. It's from July, so from this month, of this year, 2022. Um, this is from the University of Alabama, Martins et al. Linked that in the description below. Um, so the background here is that fat-free mass plays a role in the drive to eat. And so this paper is looking at does fat-free mass loss during a dietary and or exercise intervention alter the amount of weight regain based on this premise. So again, the alteration of fat-free mass amount. So if you lose muscle mass, that's fat-free mass, it's mass that does not have any fat on it. Uh, does it influence the risk of weight regain? So before we get into this, Austin, can you talk about what influences the drive to eat and eating behavior and maybe how this changes as somebody's weight changes? Yeah, this is uh, kind of like the intro question last time, an absolutely massive topic that <laughs> could expound upon for, for many hours. But ultimately, um, you know, we all have, we all experience this, this drive to eat. Um, and this is influenced by tons of different factors uh, that are ultimately integrated and uh, uh, kind of executed by the, the brain for the most part. And so this includes various biological factors, psychological factors, social environmental factors that are all kind of, uh, as I said, integrated and, and drive the ultimate behavioral pattern that, that we see. So people who've been listening to our stuff are unsurprised to hear us talk about a kind of a biopsychosocial perspective on this particular phenomenon. Uh, but we like to conceptualize eating behavior as being driven by in, at least 
in an oversimplified way, kind of a balance between appetite and satiety. And appetite itself is pretty complicated because there are different dimensions to it. Um, appetite, this kind of drive to, uh, initi- to to eat and to initiate a meal, there are there are different varieties of, of hunger that we can experience that contribute to our appetite. For example, there's this concept of homeostatic hunger, which basically just describes the hunger that arises due to our actual physiological need for calories, for example. Um, and that can be contrasted with hedonic hunger. Hedonic hunger is, is kind of more of a drive to eat for, for pleasure. That's more independent of our actual need for calories. And all of these things are in turn, you know, influenced by, again, uh, who's around us, what's around us, the food that's in front of us, um, the sensory characteristics of the meal, uh, various various other things in our environment, as well as our own personal psychology, our history with that food. Did we grow up with it? Is it a comfort food for us? All sorts of other things. Stress, sleep can inc- can can impact appetite and our, our drive to eat, and how many calories we end up consuming before we terminate a meal. And then our uh, and then various biological factors, principally genetics, uh, but uh, uh, many 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 other other factors. So ultimately, eating behavior is a real complicated uh, uh, emergent phenomenon that I would say we still probably don't even fully grasp, uh, mm-hmm. uh, influenced by lots of different variables. And so we do know, though, that it changes as weight changes. Um, and different people will have uh, uh, these kind of responses to different degrees. And to some extent, that's probably influenced by genetics, such that, for example, as some people uh, lose weight, be it a combination of body fat and and lean body mass, as they lose weight, they may have marked increases in appetite um, to try to kind of compensate and restore that uh, uh, weight that they have lost back towards their previous level. Whereas other people may be kind of genetically wired up or behaviorally uh, end up acting in a way that does not necessarily um, lead to that same degree of a kind of a, a feedback that leads them to swing back up towards the prior weight. And that's just, you know, one example of all the different ways that people can vary all the different uh, individual level variation. Other things, for example, that can change is like, you know, if somebody is to actually overfeed and gain uh, uh, weight as a result of consuming excess calories, some people will spontaneously really ramp up their physical activity and how much energy expenditure they have, uh, just not consciously, they just do, they just start moving more, doing all sorts of things. And that will act to, again, restore things back down towards where they were before, whereas other people will have little to no <laughs> effect from that. And so the weight that they gain will tend to stick around. And again, I wish it was like, uh, as simple as saying all of this is within people's conscious control and they could, you know, some people are just deciding to move more and some people are deciding to move less and some people decide to eat more and some people decide to eat less. But so, so, so much of this is governed by things that are outside of our conscious control, um, things that we are kind of pre-wired up for and uh, genetically wired up for. And then when you mix that with the uh, environment that we have around us, the kinds of foods that we have around us, the social context, all these other kind of things, then we see how these kind of genetic predispositions manifest in our modern food and social environment. Man, well said. And and I think, you know, if you're like, huh, how is hunger (laughs) and eating behaviors? How are they regulated? Just go back and re-listen to that and then do it a third time. And then, and then put it on 0.5 speed or something if you need to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it is, it's very complicated. And, and again, this all assumes that the regulation and, and in the influences are not dynamic and, and, and always function the same in each individual. And that is not the case. So effectively some of this breakdown between appetite, hunger and satiety, you know, is, is what's driving the persistence of excess body weight, excess body energy storage. 
because what you would want if somebody developed very large stores of excess energy is that their hunger would precipitously drop so they'd eat less and their physical activity would precipitously rise so they would move more and that would correct for this uh, uh, excess energy it's higher than normal uh, higher than healthy storage of body fat um, but when that breaks down and that doesn't happen you get this persistence of adiposity um, and you know that's really what's underlying a lot of this uh, uh, obesity epidemic so in any case we're going to focus on some of these biological inputs and in this paper in particular, we're going to uh, talk about the aminostatic model. And I know when I say that, because there's so many syllables, people are like, what the heck does that mean? The aminostatic model basically is a fancy way of saying that hunger and subsequent energy intake are driven by hormonal signals from the muscle tissue that are interacting with centers in the brain that drive um, hunger, eating behaviors, and physical activity. The idea uh, is that if you lose a lot of or some amount of lean body mass during uh, either a dietary intervention, so you're trying to lose weight or starvation or something like that, uh, the result after uh, like the food environment is restored if you're uh, in starvation or uh, the end of a dietary intervention uh, will be that you would overeat and you'd be very, very via being very, very hungry. We call that hyperphagia. So this is supported in men by the Minnesota starvation experiment. These people lost incredible amounts of fat-free mass, muscle mass, and they had a very strong desire to eat, a very strong hunger response when they were allowed to eat at libidum, so as much as they wanted. Uh, and that's even when correcting for fat mass loss. So that's the aminostatic model. Also, it should be noted there's a lipostatic model that basically is similar, but it has to do with fat mass. Basically, hormones uh, from the adipose tissue and the GI tract um, interact with these centers in the brain that um, have to do with hunger, eating behaviors, physical activity, et cetera, like that. And when you lose a substantial amount of fat mass, those hormone hormonal signals ramp up and cause you to be hungrier and uh, move a little less, uh, or in some cases, move a lot less in order to restore fat mass. So the aminostatic model is basically a way to restore lean body mass. So that's protein, amino protein, lean body mass made of protein, not fat. The lipostatic model is a mechanism for restoring fat mass, lipo, you know, standing for uh, lipids, uh, referring to lipids, and then you're trying to restore fat mass if you have lost that. Um, this is actually kind of the underlying premise behind why a maintenance period is necessary after weight loss. So if you lose some weight, um, and it's going to be a blend of fat mass and fat-free mass, so you're going to lose some fat, some muscle, um, if you just like ramped right back up, to maintenance level calories, um, without this maintenance period, you would preferentially restore fat mass. And that is thought to be due to this sort of lipostatic model, this sort of preference for restoring fat mass. Cause the body's like, wait, why did you get rid of all these energy stores? Why you do that? And then it's like, mm, we're just going to preferentially restore these things. Um, and so that kind of runs counter to the bro science where it's like, yo, it, you should get as lean as possible because then afterwards you're going to put on only muscle mass. You're going to be so sensitive to all these dietary inputs and you're going to put on a ton of muscle mass. Well, the reality is you're actually primed and ready to put on a bunch of fat mass, which is why the maintenance period can be useful after a period of weight loss where you lose both a little bit of lean body mass and a little bit of fat mass. And that can be kind of altered based on how much protein you're eating, how much resistance training you're doing, genetics, etc. cetera. Uh, but in any case, that's kind of the premise for having a maintenance period. Um, in any case, their data for this, particularly in men, is relatively strong that a greater loss of fat-free mass during a dietary intervention predicts weight regain. 
But this study was unique because it focused only on women. And prior to this, we just didn't have data on women. And so, yeah, we could assume that men and women respond similarly. But uh, this study kind of uh, did the, the groundwork that we needed to say, yeah, in fact, that does happen. So the purpose of the study was to determine if the amount of fat-free mass loss during an intervention, so either diet alone, diet plus aerobic training, or diet plus resistance training, is a predictor of weight regain. What they did is they took 141 women, average BMI was 25, so they were all individuals with overweight or obesity, average age was 35, and all of them were previously sedentary, so insufficiently active, not meeting the current physical activity guidelines. Um, the intervention, this was basically from two separate studies that were retrospectively analyzed, so analyzed after the fact. The first study, um, they basically looked at individuals on a diet alone. Those folks were eating 800 calories per day um, for a period of time uh, that was kind of open-ended but basically they stopped the, the intervention once they achieved a BMI of less than 25, so a normal BMI. The second study, they basically compared diet alone again. They did the same study over again, but then they also had two additional arms, diet plus resistance training, lifting weights three times a week, or diet plus aerobic training or conditioning three times a week. And they basically just looked at not only uh, how long did it take for folks to lose the necessary body weight, but also how fast uh, and how much did they regain in a year long follow-up afterwards? So in order to evaluate not only how much weight did they gain, but what was the composition of the weight that they regained, if they gained any at all, they did a DEXA scan. Um, they did this after a four week stabilization phase after the weight loss, and then they did it again a year later. So what happened on average, these folks lost about 12 kilograms of body weight and 11.6 uh, uh, kilograms of this was fat mass and a half kilo uh, on average was fat-free mass or muscle. Um, now, to be clear, that's not necessarily all muscle. Could be water, could be organ, could be glycogen stores or whatever. So they may in fact have not lost any skeletal muscle. Um, and yeah, I it seems like they did pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not like these are exactly like power lifters or bodybuilders. And there are certainly yeah. studies out there where they do DEXA scans and people have gained lean body mass. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, and in any case, so that's the average weight loss after the dietary intervention or after the intervention period, which again, these folks are on 800 calories a day for an open-ended period of time until they got to a BMI less than 25. So that's thing one. On average, they lost about 12 kilos, most of it being fat mass. Now, in the year follow-up, the average weight regain was six kilos after a year. So they gained about half of it back, almost all of it fat, but there was a wide range of inter-individual variation. So some people lost even more weight, an additional three and a half kilos or so, whereas some people gained over 20 kilos back. They gained more than they even started. Huge inter-individual variation. There was also a wide inter-individual variation in the amount of fat-free muscle that they lost. That ranged for people who <laughs> lost 32.7% of uh, 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 fat-free mass and people who actually gained muscle mass 28.2%. So some people were on the gains train and other people were like, no, I'm going to lose a bunch. Um, so yeah, huge intra-individual variation there. It's exactly what we expect because we know that not everyone's going to respond the same to a given intervention. We've talked about that a bunch. Um, importantly, the amount of fat-free muscle loss was largest in those who only did the diet. So they did no aerobic training or no resistance training. So on average, people um, who were doing the diet only lost about 10% of fat-free uh, uh, fat-free mass or muscle. Um, whereas people who did the diet plus aerobic training lost about 2% of lean body mass and people who did diet plus lifting three times a week actually gained about three and a half percent of fat-free mass. So they, on average, people were gaining some muscle mass, which is good. Um, as expected, based on all the data we had from before, which again was mostly in dudes, 
the amount of fat-free mass lost, the amount of muscle mass lost was associated with more weight regain. The relationship I would classify as moderate. I'm not super impressed by an R value of 0.2. If it was 0.9, I'd be like, holy crap, this is like a one-to-one almost relationship, but certainly seems to be associated. It was uh, statistically significant. Um, but yeah, it's not like the strongest relationship I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, those with a negative percentage of fat-free muscle loss, which was, uh, almost two thirds of the, of the studied group. Um, so those folks lost fat-free mass during the intervention. They regained significantly more weight compared with those who had a positive percentage of fat-free muscle loss. So those who actually gained lean body mass. Um, so yeah, if you lost lean body mass during the intervention, that sets you up for, you know, weight regain where it seemed like if you gained muscle mass, that sets you up for weight maintenance or at least a a lower risk of weight regain. Um, so Austin, before we get into like really analyzing these things, does this inter-individual variation like jump out to you or is this like kind of what you expected? This is pretty much just exactly what I would expect with most of these kind of interventions. It's similar to the inter- inter-individual variation that we see when doing almost any intervention on humans that has any degree of efficacy. You know, when mm-hmm. we treat, when we treat people with high blood pressure with the same dose of the same medicine, we see a wide range of how much it comes down. When we put people on our strength training program, we see a wide range of how much muscle mass they gain, how much strength uh, they gain all the way from nothing to maybe even losing some strength or muscle mass all the way to freak status kind of, kind of gains. And so we're seeing similar things here. Um, and, and this gets back to what I was mentioning earlier, as far as so much of this being a, phenomenon that emerges from the interaction between people's individual genetic predisposition and the surrounding environment. And so you could have people on one end who are genetically wired up to have uh, relatively less of a compensatory appetite response to calorie restriction and weight loss, such that when they lost the initial 12 kilos, they didn't have massive increases in their appetite. Um, And perhaps they also did not see uh, substantial decreases in their spontaneous activity and energy expenditure and things like that. Right. So that would be, that would be the ideal combination for somebody to succeed on this kind of a, a plan is somebody who's, you know, genetic neurobehavioral kind of predisposition is such that when they lose a bunch of weight through this kind of calorie restriction, they don't have a big increase in their appetite and they don't have a big shutdown in their physical, you know, their, their activity such that they decrease their energy expenditure that would lead to the best outcome. And then you swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum and you can have somebody who's wired up such that if they even start to lose a little bit of weight, they start to get massive increases in their appetite. And if they end up getting all the way to this, you know, average, say, they probably didn't get it that far if I had to guess to, to 12, but say they did, then they would be so ravenously hungry and per- potentially in the course of that weight loss, they also shut down so much of their physical activity and decrease their energy expenditure that suddenly they're ready to swing their weight back up in the other direction by 20 kilo weight gain as the top end of that weight regain process happened. Mm. And you could have every combination permutation, you know, in between, uh, it's just a giant spectrum of how people are going to respond to this intervention, be it in terms of their energy intake and their energy expenditure uh, responses to, to weight loss. And again, it's not like the person who weight, who had a significant weight regain is like fundamentally a worse person. Um, and the person who sustained or well lost a little bit more weight are fundamentally better people. A lot of the variables that impact this stuff, these behavioral responses are not within their conscious control. Um, and so that's why when we talk about obesity management and things like that, we have a combination of these kind of lifestyle type interventions that should make it 
uh, as automatic as possible and should make it require as little conscious effort as possible. And then we also can augment with the use of medical treatments that directly target these kind of uh, innate neurological pathways and, and hit the hypothalamus and hit these other areas that actually drive things like energy intake and energy expenditure type behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. I think if the, if the assumption here based on like, you know, the aminostatic model is that if you, you're going to, if you lose lean body mass, you're likely to be hungrier later on as a sort of compensatory mechanism to restore the amount of fat-free mass that you lost, then it makes sense that folks who lost less or even gained some are going to be less likely to be less hungry, um, you know, after the intervention is over. And if certainly as they uh, are able to maintain that amount of lean body mass. In addition, we know that resistance training, well, exercise in general, and then resistance training in particular seems to sensitize folks to satiety signals. So when people ask, like, does exercise work to uh, for, for weight loss? And the answer is, well, kind of in that it tends to make folks a little bit more sensitive to the feelings of fullness, the satiety signals. In addition, it also seems to reduce the decrease in um, total daily energy expenditure uh, that we see when folks lose weight because there's a reduction in the sort of muscle economy effect. Basically, you gain a little bit more muscle, so it's more expensive for you to move around. So the reduction in, in metabolic rate um, and subsequent total daily energy expenditure seems to be a little bit less. And so from a mechanistic standpoint, this makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and, and now we have some clinical data kind of validating that. And so what, what can we do about this, right? Well, so thing one, if, if somebody's asking, like, what's better for weight loss or, or weight maintenance would be a better question. What type of exercise, aerobic training or resistance training? Answer both. We want everybody to meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines. That means lifting. That means doing your conditioning. Do both. Anyway, I can make a strong case. We know that muscle mass is important for function, independent function in particular, and living a long, healthy life with compressed morbidity. So got to lift. Do that. Do your conditioning. Do both. Also gain some muscle mass. It seems to be very, very important. And resistance training is the best way uh, to gain muscle mass. Um, also, when it comes to rate of weight loss, I think we can make a strong case uh, for a more gradual approach because we don't want people to lose a bunch of lean body mass. And so if you were trying to set somebody up for losing the most amount of lean body mass <laughs> as possible, you'd put them on a very, very large calorie restriction with no resistance training and have it be at low protein. And it's like, hmm, that seems like an excellent way to lose lean body mass. So like, let's not do any of those things. Uh, <laughs> but, but you see that all the time. And so it's like, all right, what if this study was done with a more moderate sort of energy reduction, energy deficit. And it's like, well, maybe you wouldn't lose as much muscle mass and maybe the groups would be tighter diet alone versus diet and aerobic training versus diet and resistance training. Um, and like, what if you had people do diet and resistance training and aerobic training, what would those results be? So we'll have to wait for more data on that, you know, to feel super confident, but I feel very comfortable in recommending that folks eat enough protein, meet the current physical activity guidelines, and then with respect to sort of managing their weight after a period of weight loss, like do a maintenance phase, I would do all of those things. But again, I'm not reinventing anything. People who get got all the way to the end of this podcast to hear that they're like, well, come on, Feigenbaum. That's what you've been saying all along. And I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> not trying to lead you astray. And it's interesting that you and I very rarely like have these podcasts where we're like, this new incredible finding that will changes everything. It's like, no, kind of like the stuff we've been talking about and just keep talking and, about and, it. I mean, to some extent, and even when we see things that come up that conflict or that uh, cause us to revise a position, it's rarely like just a wholesale upheaval of everything we've ever believed. Usually it's just like, okay, we still, uh, and because and this came up in like, we keep coming back to the stamp seed oil post that caused a lot of argument, but 
people will be like, well, here's this paper. And it's like, again, we draw our conclusions based on the totality of available evidence on a particular topic. Mm -hmm. And so if there is almost no evidence on something, then you really don't have much to go on and you shouldn't be that confident with any conclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's thing one. If there's a very large body of evidence on something and it all tends to consistently point in one direction, then you can be very confident in conclusions there. And that's kind of how we feel about, you know, a lot of the lipid cholesterol related stuff that we talk about. If there's a large body of evidence and it's all pointing in all sorts of different directions, then you probably shouldn't be that confident about things and you shouldn't let any one new paper that comes out really strongly sway you in a particular direction because again the overall body of evidence is you know might be pointing in multiple different directions and so that's why if people are looking for just like again the the the, the new latest thing that you should supplement to you know completely transform your life or something like ain't going to get it here because no. just rarely is there going to be something that new that comes out in the scientific literature that just like causes us to just flip the table over and say, everybody has to know about this right now. I'm changing everything that I do. Can you, can you imagine though being tasked with doing that every week or multiple times per week so that you could maintain your audience and your, <laughs> and who you were, you were advertising to, you know, mm-hmm. is that <laughs> I can imagine a few people who, <laughs> who do that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, not here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. This has been episode 184. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me. Uh, Austin, we'll get you on the podcast again. I'm super excited that you're in your new place. I assume that you're going to be building out a massive recording studio because this is so near and dear to your heart. Totally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let us know what you want to hear about next. So you guys can tweet at us, Barbell Medicine on Twitter, or reach us on any of the socials. If you search Barbell Medicine, before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me. We'll see you here next week on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. Thank you.